You're listening to the Chancellor Pink Podcast on Chancellor Pink Radio. I just wanted to make a quick podcast on one particular thought. It stems from the movie Taxi Driver, but it isn't about Taxi Driver. If if you've never seen Taxi Driver, it's uh, a movie that when I first saw it, I thought, ah, I don't know, kind of a violent ending, kind of slow scenes and kind of a dreary character by De Niro and, you know, just an icky kind of overall feeling to it. But the brilliance of the movie isn't about the, even the filmmaking per se, because Scorsese was still pretty raw back then in 76. There's a dated look. There's some wonderful shots to it. The best thing about Taxi Driver when it comes to filmmaking, um, beyond De Niro, uh, being, you know, obvious up-and-coming superstar actor, and he was nominated for Best Actor for that, is the music by Bernard Herrmann, who was just a fabulous uh, composer of music. I mean, he did all the Hitchcock films like Vertigo and and uh, Rear Window, and he did uh, the music for uh, Psycho, uh, and he did uh, the music for this one, Taxi Driver. In fact, it was his last score, I believe, there's a story where he met Scorsese for Christmas on Christmas Day in New York at dinner to talk about it. And then he went up to his hotel room, I think, and died. I'd have to go check that out. You might want to Google that. It's just my memory is it was a Christmas night, maybe Christmas night, 25th of December. He had just finished the score. He met with Scorsese about it. And uh, and then died in a hotel room. That's my memory. Anyway, one thing I know for certain is it was posthumous. The the release of the film, he was already gone when when Tax Survivor, and it's the last score he ever wrote. Those things I know for a fact, but pretty sure about the Christmas Day talking about it was Scorsese thing too. But anyway, check that out. But the score from Taxi Drivers kick ass. And obviously, you know, uh, Jodie Foster in that time period was surprisingly good. But there are, there are flaws in the movie, whatever. You know, 76, think about it. You know, I mean, there's a lot of... I mean, when you think about the art of cinema and at that time period, it was, it was cutting edge and beautiful. But it, it's still a dark movie. But there's one aspect of it. The screenplay... By Paul Schrader, who I really like a lot. You know, he's written and directed his own movies since then, um, and um, some some of them really good. And he he seems to he f- often follows the same sort of theme, which is troubled person, good heart. Uh, has to deal with, uh, you know, ugliness in his surroundings in some way, gets a, a moral conundrum, and goes crazy in how he deals with it. And there's always a woman involved, too, because Paul Schrader, of course, correctly associates uh, love, romance, and sex, passion, with a man trying to make a difference in evaluating right from wrong and just, you know, uh, matriculating his way through life and society. 
unless, I mean, again, I'm only speaking for heterosexual men, but unless you shut, you're a shut-in or you don't expose yourself to life much, there's no way to be a man and to try to make a difference without uh, that sparking your interest in a woman, in women, and generally in one woman. And men are very, I think, instinctually primal, but also romantic. And I think that the men, by romantic, I don't mean, you know, writing poems and all that. I mean, focused, intense, and even the cheating men tend to be very focused on one woman in their heart even as they cheat, it's really rare you find a guy who's just a detached kind of lecherous character. The way Warren Beatty played it in Shampoo, which, by the way, at the end of the movie, he went back to the girl he loved, Julie Christie, and she dumped him. But So he even wasn't that way. He still really kind of loved one girl. He just sort of had moved past her with his lecherosity. Not a real word, but I like it with his lecherousness. But I, I, I believe that about men. I believe that, and again, these are all generalizations, but I think that most men are, um, you know, the muse concept, right? Focused on a woman. So I think that it's hard for a lot of good, passionate, artistic, you know, just, uh, and troubled, and troubled men to let go, to let go of some someone. But I think what we find in romance and love and the works of Paul Schrader uh, are men who get disturbed, get upset, go at something in an angry or violent or disturbed way because they can't have the woman they want. But somehow they get redirected or refocused and they do something heroic or beautiful. They're steered away from their uglier or darker impulse, and they are driven to use that same energy for good. And at the core of that redirection is the love they have for a woman. So, I mean, if you saw our first reform, that's a Paul Schrader film that he wrote and directed. It's more recent from uh, 2017 with... um, Ethan Hawke in the lead as the priest. And, you know, he falls in love with uh, Amanda Seyfried, whose husband kills himself. Um, and his dilemma he, is about climate change and the awful people in his parish and his church who um, are, are, you know, climate deniers, science deniers. And about corporate money and greed and not going to do the right thing. And it's the same thing that drove Amanda Seyfried's husband to kill himself in that movie. And he kind of just picks up that yoke and puts it on himself from the dead husband. And he starts to a lonely priest who just felt like, what's my cause? What's my purpose? He puts on himself this darker purpose. And he decides he's going to blow up his parish to make a statement for climate change and kill all these fucking asshole people in his church who are a bunch of mostly jagoffs, you know, and, um, 
and it's the only way he can find meaning in his life and have a message and do something powerful. Uh, but at the end, he decides to kill himself, and he drinks, drink. I'm ruining the movie. Spoilers, spoilers. Um, <laughs> before he goes off into the parish with bombs strapped to him that he wants to blow up in the church, he decides to drink Drano or whatever and kill himself um, to stop himself from doing it. But he fights himself, and he doesn't do it. So instead of suicide being the reason he stops himself from that, he turns and Amanda Seyfried is there somehow in the rectory in his separate home away from the church where he was going to go over to the church. She went to look for him. And the whole reason he was going to kill himself is she, she was there. She wasn't supposed to come. He told her not to come. He was in love with her. He didn't want her there because he didn't want her to, to die, obviously. And he knew what he was going to do. She sensed that he was going to do something bad like her husband was because he was going to do something bad before he killed himself. He had the explosives in his garage. He took them from her husband. So she runs over to the church and she sees him and um, he runs to her and they kiss and it swirls in a circle and the movie ends. I thought it was a beautiful wonder. I I, I give that movie a 10. It's a, to, In my opinion, it's a better taxi driver. It's like taxi driver, but it's better. Taxi driver... Ends in a similar way. De Niro's character is going to assassinate this political candidate. But it's very different in the sense that, you know, uh, 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 Ethan Hawke's character was going to kill the whole parish because he was going to make a big, strong objection to the, to the greed that's, uh, you know, propelling society forward into death. It's going to kill the world with their greed for oil and continuing the same pattern because that's where the money is and not caring about the future. So he had much more of a moral reason for wanting to kill, <laughs> if there is such a thing. In Taxi Driver, De Niro's going to assassinate the politician because the girl he loved, who he had a falling out with, Sybil Shepherd, he takes her on a date. And he decides to take her to a porno movie because that's all he knows. And she gets very, you know, creeped out and offended and marches out of the theater and he chases out after and he just tells her. He's like, well, that was the only kind of movies I watch. I don't know. And he means it. He's, he's like retarded. He's a retarded guy when it comes to women and socializing with them. So to him, he thought that would be a romantic date. You take a woman to a porno. <laughs> Where guys are jerking off in the theater and everything, you know. Um, she did not like it, and that's the end of that relationship. So he's very uh, disturbed by that, by the fact that the girl he loved, and she works for this politician. Uh, that's who she works for. And so his motive for killing the politician is really just to, it's, it's you know, to be honest, when you look at the movie, it's just a step down from killing her. He's just rejected and hurt. And Palatine got in his car once, this politician, and he, you know, he glad talked him, Robert De Niro's character, from the front seat driving. And the politician didn't really know his name and just kind of was full of shit. And so you could see that this is a phony, the politician. And De Niro could see it was a phony. But. That's not why he's going to assassinate him. He's going to assassinate him to 
hurt the guy that the woman he was into is supporting. And also because Albert Brooks's character who was in there one day, well, when he went in to meet Sybil Shepard, I mean, his character was in there and he was kind of a, a dorky, jealous guy because he likes Sybil Shepard. Who wouldn't, you know? Sybil Shepard from same actress and that day from uh, The Heartbreak Kid, which was 72, four years earlier. That was her first movie ever. It said introducing Sybil Shepard. And she was, you know, this hot, gorgeous girl that that uh, Charles Grodin discovers on his honeymoon and decides he's going to leave his wife for her. So then she comes along. She's this hot girl working for this politician. Yeah, so De Niro gets rejected by her and decides to kill her candidate just basically because it's better than killing her. I, I don't know. I mean, there was really no other reason for it other than psychotic anger, you know, and loneliness and wanting to hurt someone who hurts you without actually hurting her, you know, hurt her uh, through osmosis. So not a very good motive, right? Terrible motive. He's going to be a villain. He cuts his head to a mohawk. He has all the guns strapped to him. You talking to me, you talking to me, et cetera. He's going to be a villain. He's going to be a, you know, go down in history as an evil, psychotic assassin, you know, mentally ill, lonely, loser, crazy guy. But when the social uh, social security <laughs> Freudian slip, when the when the uh, uh, the guard the the Secret Service, which which it isn't, I guess that's only they only work for the president. But when the security guard service, you know, bodyguard type person working for this politician, sort of senses that this guy may be dangerous with the Mohawk De Niro, he runs away and he gets away. Before, before he, you know, he had his guns out. He was going to kill, and he runs away. So, what does he do? He decides in his crazy state, and he's very angry, and he's very upset, and he's banging. You know, he's just frustrated as hell because he wanted to kill that guy, and he wanted to get his revenge against the girl who broke his heart in his lonely, fucked up world. But instead, he races off to the this prostitute he had met earlier in the movie played by Jodie Foster a 14 year old and she was being used by her pimp played by Harvey Keitel and used to fuck older men and make money and just a 14 year old girl just being you know turned into a sex slave and and you know voluntarily i mean as much as that can be voluntary by a 14 year old right right so we don't talk in those terms nowadays. We just say, it's evil and it's all about arrest him. But really, if you watch Jodie Jody Foster and her in that movie, she didn't know any better, but it was her choice and she was doing what she wanted and she was being manipulated and seduced by this older pimp guy. But she was a very legitimate person, just happened to be a young person. Um, nowadays, we don't let them have minds. We just say they're being used, it's evil, and we, we've created laws that just slam dunk no thought, no talk, no rational, you know, and I'm not saying it's okay. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying when you watch this movie, it's much more realistic about the way these things happen, okay, which is to say these young girls run away from home and they know what they're doing when they run away from home, right, and they meet shady character older men and they know they're older and they know they're shady and 
they get involved in sexual things because the girls are sexual, even though they're younger. And they, you know, it's not like uh, we're not talking about, and there are cases today and everywhere of kidnapped girls and all that and sold into slavery. But this is a case that's much more common of a person who voluntarily chooses to live this life because she's young and stupid. And we protect her with the laws. We do. But the point is, you, when you see Jodie Foster in this movie, you see, in my opinion, a much more realistic view of how this happens, which is to say women are culpable to the extent that they make choices. Are they underage? Yeah. Do they know what they're doing? No. But women love to say, I didn't know what I was doing. I was too young. It's a cop-out to some degree because, I mean, I remember being 13 and 14 and 15 and you know, nobody made me do shit ever. You know, I knew what I was doing and I took full responsibility for it. I never thought for a minute, well, if it comes to the law, I'll just claim something and I'll get off because I'm underage. Now, maybe some minors who rob and do bad things, murder, think that way. I, you know, I didn't do bad things, but I also never thought that way. I never thought about my age as an excuse for my behavior ever. I felt like an adult when I was five. I think most people do. I think when we're making conscious choices, we believe in our choices, no matter how old we are. The, the thing is, we don't know enough. The idea of the law protecting minors isn't to say they, it wasn't voluntary. It was that they're not aware enough about the realities of life to make a choice that should be supported or validated as uh, legitimate. We're basically taking away power from younger people. We're saying, you think you wanted to do that. But I guarantee you, if you knew more about what's really going on here, you wouldn't have wanted to do that. But that's all true with women and sex and men most of the time. They exactly know what's going on. They know the guy's way older. They know about sex. They want it. They want, you know. So the thing is, the very logical reason for stepping in and protecting them isn't true, really, because it's not like, well, oh, you mean he's 40 and I'm 14? I didn't know that. No, they knew that. Oh, you mean sex involves me spreading my leg? Oh, no, they knew that. There's nothing about the event they weren't aware of. The only idea is like, but do you know that, how badly he wants you. Do you know? Well, they like that. Yeah, I know he wants me bad. That's hot. I like that. You know, I mean, the bottom line is I don't, I, you got to protect people that are underage from older people because older people uh, aren't allowed to have things, you know, and, and younger people uh, need protected. And that's all. Just we've got to deny older people from having things. And we've got to protect younger people. That's it. That's the only real answer. There is no real logic psychology behind it at all. It's just about if you're under, we will randomly pick an age, 18. Okay. If you're, if you're under 18, then your choices, even though you know exactly what you're doing and you're voluntarily, voluntarily making this choice, we're going to say if you're under, uh, what's the age? Oh, yeah, 18. And by the way, it changes from state to state. For statutory rape, for alcohol, you know, there, there are multiple things, multiple laws that change from state to state as to when we decide you're, you're able to make a choice on a particular issue. Isn't that funny? If it was really like genetic or God-ordained, don't you think it would be the same age everywhere in the world? Not just America. 
No, because there is no fucking age. Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm getting carried away here. But the bottom line is Jodie Foster and Taxi Driver, in my opinion, humble as it isn't, uh, portrays more accurately the reality of the mindset of someone that age and why they're doing the awful things they're doing rather than the evil of men and men are evil. And sure, uh, Harvey Keitel was a bad dude in that movie. And De Niro, another evil man who was going to assassinate a politician, decides on a spur of the moment that when he gets thwarted in his assassination to rescue this 14-year-old girl. But he didn't rescue her because she was 14. He rescued her because he was, you know, going over there and got hooked up with her to have sex with her. And he thought, no, she's just a young girl. And she just, I feel like this is bad here and I want to help her. It wasn't about... You know, the law, crucifying Harvey Keitel because he's an older man under the law and she's a young girl. It was about, this girl doesn't want this. This girl's confused. This girl doesn't get it. I met her guy, her pimp. He's a pig. I don't like him. He's using her. He says, you know, nobody calls you. He said, you're a piece of, what do you say? You're a piece of chicken or I forget the word he uses. And she laughs and says, he wouldn't call me that. But, um. So he's really just seeing her as a sweet girl who's caught up in a in a shitty situation. To him, it's not about minor and adult and all the legal shit. It's just about a sweet girl caught up in bad guys with bad shit. And um, that's what should matter most to the law, to life, and all of us. So he steps forward from his possible evil act to be a hero for someone he decides needs rescued. And he shoots up the joint, and she ends up back with her parents, and they write him a wonderful thank you letter. But one thing that's not addressed in that movie is I wonder how she felt. (laughs) She's shocked and freaked out and terrified by him when he comes in shooting her John and murdering everybody, you know? And what's interesting, too, is after he murders everybody, he puts the gun under his own throat, and he pulls the trigger multiple times, and there's no bullets left. He's out of his mind. Wonderful, wonderful, accurate, realistic screenplay by Paul Schrader. He wasn't in there, come on, honey, come with me. Get on my back. I'll take you out of here. He literally was just killing all these people because they were fucking with this innocent girl. And his love for Sybil Shepherd was this innocence. And it was fucked over. So it was really his violent battle for innocence with the ugliness he would see every day riding in his taxi. You know, the, the, the dark side of people. And he still wanted to believe in innocence and love. His love for Sybil Shepherd slash his, this, his belief that this girl was still in her core innocent. And that innocence needed protected, but he wasn't really interested in protecting her. Per se, per se, it was the overall innocence. So that when he killed everyone, he didn't pull her out of their rescue or he was ready to kill himself because he just spiraled out of control and went crazy. But he was viewed, ironically, as a hero. And she was back with her parents, who sound, by all reports from the letter, to be a barrel of laughs. And... Her parents sound awful. 
sound they sound like parents that anyone who was hip or cool or smart or fun or wanted freedom of mind would have run away from long ago. So again, yes, yeah, she might be 14 or 15 or 16, whatever she ended up being by the time they sent her back to her parents. But um, God damn, she was right to leave them. So maybe she made the wrong choice to get involved with Harvey Keitel's pimp and to fuck for a living. But hey, it's a choice she made. And in conjunction with the choice to leave her parents, I, I would say whatever she wants because that was the right choice to leave her parents. That's clear from the letter. And anyway, at the end of the movie, Sybil Shepard gets in his cab, of course, and uh, chit-chats with him and leaves. And then we have a little psychotic music from Bernard Herrmann. Scorsese really put that part in where he turns, suddenly turns, De Niro's character turns the uh, rearview mirror to get at one last glimpse of Sybil as he drives away. And you realize the obsession is still alive. It will never die his obsession with her and his belief in love. And even though he got all the accolades for being a hero, rescuing, rescuing the prostitute, did he really exercise his demons or did he just lose it for a minute? And now he's back and he's still a dangerous powder keg ready to explode. But the theory of that movie and the reason I wanted to make this podcast was the concept of taking your energy that might otherwise be based in frustration or anger and disappointment, rage at people, at their ignoring of you and focusing it, even if it's on a sudden quick turn, into something productive, heroic, wonderful, positive. And I think this is something that needs to happen more because I think we all have a lot of things working in our lives and our minds and our souls that can build up. We all have disappointments and disillusionments and certainly unrequited love like in these movies, especially taxi driver. Um, we have these feelings that come from that of inadequacy, um, just supreme disappointment and depression and anger. And the point is there is energy in us with love. There is energy in us with hope that gets thwarted. There is this drive to produce, to do, to create, um, and when we fail or are rejected, it just sort of spins like a Tasmanian devil in a circle. And, and sometimes we want it to explode and to shoot off like a missile, like Wiley e. Coyote shooting off missiles, you know, lighting the, the fuse as the roadrunner spins his legs. We want to shoot off missiles. And, and sometimes we, we feel these urges to just rage and it may not be hopefully violent but just verbally even or just with anger in general or just with the sense of um some people buy punching bags just to punch the bag some people punch holes in walls some people jog some people you know take up kickboxing um some people just 
rock and roll, play music loud, extreme music, or plug in their guitar and headphones and just jam out. Um, but those are all just sort of ways to just, for the moment, rage or ex express the anger, the, the, the disappointment. What I'm suggesting here is more along the lines of Paul Schrader's screenplays, which is to say to convert them into love and action for love. And um, now you could say, well, that's not taxi driver. And you're right. I didn't describe it. And it really wasn't an act of love to rescue that girl. But that's the irony of it. Well, I'm suggesting doing that as a reality, not just as an ironic act of actual counter-violence. But that's what makes that movie brilliant. Brilliant is De Niro's character didn't shift to a heroic act of love. He just shifted to a different act of violence, but came out of it a hero. What I'm suggesting is that there are ways we can take our thwarted hopes and anger and give them to someone else. And in particular, did you ever notice that when someone whose love you wanted to give, you, you want to give love to someone in particular or someone's and it, and they're not around or they reject it. There's always someone else that pops up. Maybe someone you don't really want to love or really care about who pops up and there they are. And, the, and, and, and do you give your love then to them? You should, because timing is everything. You know, I think very little occurs by coincidence. Um, I think it's actually, actually very common and almost like a miracle how God or the forces of nature, whatever you want to call them, will present us just at the moment when we are rejected by some other entity, whether it's we didn't get a job we wanted or... Um, we didn't get the girl we wanted or we didn't uh, we lost money in some financial venture or something went wrong financially right around the corner from that we have an opportunity to put out for someone to to you know to, to answer a call from someone to respond to an email or text from someone to meet someone or someone who wants to see us for for lunch or someone's asking for something from us and our instinct is to say go away I'm not happy right now. I'm I'm troubled right now. Things are bad for me right now. I don't have money right now. I can't give you money. I can't do this for you. I'm taxed myself right now. I'm vexed myself right now. That's the instinct. But in that very moment, stop and reflect on why is this person right now contacting me, looking for me, looking for my support, my help, my love, my interest, Look, my money, whatever it is. Why right now, at this very moment that I feel so rejected and defeated? And I'm, I wanted to make a podcast suggesting that it's not a coincidence. Because if you think about it, think about your own life. That happens a lot. If you really stop and think about it. There are a lot of occasions when you have a big disappointment and then you turn around and someone else is there, something else is there. 
and you're like, yeah, big deal. Yeah, you're not, you're exactly who I don't want to see right now. Or, oh God, why are you draining me even more? I just had this loss. Now you're putting this person in front of me who wants this from me. I don't have the energy. I don't have the drive. I, I, I'm here to say that it's just the opposite. Those moments are there for a reason. And I really believe that those people that come into your life right at a moment of great defeat and loss, even if they've been there before, even if they've been in your life, but they seem to surface right at that time, that's God talking to you. That's the universe speaking to you. That's karma. That's everything good in life saying, now's the time to give that thing, that energy, that aspect, that love inside yourself that was just defeated or rejected or renounced. Here is where it belongs, right here, right with this person or this event or this request that's coming to your life at this moment. That's why it's in your life at this moment. Because it's God's way of saying, okay, now that didn't work out because even though you wanted it really badly, that wasn't where your heart belonged. Now will you look at this? Now will you finally recognize this? And it's a wake-up call. To say, all this time, my ego, my selfishness fought against this. And it's always been there, or it's never been there, but it's here now. And I never wanted to see this. It's not what I wanted. It's not what I just was trying to get. But here it is. Is this really just coincidence? Is this really just a freaky accident? Or is this my alternative way to reach the same end I was looking for to begin with? Will this person, will this job, will this event, will this family member, will this loved one bring me the fulfillment and joy that I thought I was going to get in the other event, person, loved one, etc.? Maybe I just wanted something so badly I didn't really see the long-term reality of where it was going to take me. And maybe this, this person or event or thing dropped in my lap now at my darkest moment. It's something that seems very undesirable is actually the answer I've been praying for, the solution that I need. And sometimes we'll only see the hope and the value in, in some of these lesser desired people or things at our moment of loss, at our greatest moment of loss. It's not about, oh, you're my rebound person. It's about my eyes are finally open because of defeat to the truth and beauty that you bring me. And you've been there all along. And I believe in that. And I believe 
that that's what taxi driver is really about, despite the fact that his motivation for killing the politician was bad, really, and his reaction to save the prostitute was based still in rage. The, the message is you go from what you want to what's right, and you do the right thing. You take that same energy and you convert it. And that more directly happens in First Reformed and, and many other Paul Schrader films. But it's the same situation. We are troubled. We have a dilemma. We have desires and, and intuition, strength in our convictions. We almost do something crazy or at least put ourselves in a situation we think we want, but it would have been a disaster. And at that very moment when we almost make that disastrous choice or it is defeated, we are, we think everything's horrible and black and dark. We almost swallow Drano to end it. But at that moment, uh, we're presented with the most beautiful resurrection of our hopes that we could have never imagined. If we just only will take that step out and accept this alternative option that we didn't want to see if we will only accept it as where we belong, what is right, what the universe, what God wants for us. So I wanted to make a podcast telling you to keep your eyes open, even when you think it's time to shut them forever, even when you think you've lost and it's over. Keep your eyes open for that moment when you can actually find the solution you've been looking for. And believe me, it comes right on that rebound and it comes when you actually trust in what you're being offered versus what you were just trying to take. You might have wanted to take or have something, but this is what is being offered to you. And accepting what is offered to you is hard. It's humbling. It's disappointing maybe, but trust me on this one. It is where you'll find peace and happiness and true joy, where your eyes are opened enough and you're, you're humble enough to simply accept what is truly on the table for you, accept what is truly being offered to you as being what you deserve, and what you really want. What you, might not be what you thought you wanted, but it ends up being what you really wanted. So keep your eyes open for that, will you? And Merry Christmas. I love you. Yabba da boop 